Welcome to the Wallaway. This is Imran Nanlawal, and I'm here with Sumeya Mank, a student of social services. Is that correct? Social work, yes. Social work. Okay, mm-hmm. so why social work? Why have you chosen to study social work? I've always known that I've always wanted to help people growing up, and I never knew the route of social work. I always thought that helping people entailed just the field of medicine or teaching and stuff like that. And then I realized that there was a field called social work when I went into college. I actually went into college thinking I was going to be a psychiatrist and pre-medical student, and that was exactly not what I wanted to do. And then I realized that my strengths and my just my focus was towards helping others, and I realized that I wanted to just pursue something that made change on a higher level but why do you think so why do you think helping others one is needed what what has made you believe that okay to per, i need to pursue this study so i can help them but why, what even put that in your mind that i like people need help because i've noticed a very big deficit not only in my community which is south asian immigrants but just immigrants throughout the city of chicago um, individuals of minority low income status individuals who are lacking resources and linking the bridge towards success. And I realized that in order for them to become successful, they need an advocate. And I wanted to be that advocate for them. Okay, so what are some of their hindrances? You mentioned the South Asian uh, community. I think we're both from the same community. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the, why do we have these obstacles and roadblocks from your experience, from your studies? What has caused this disconnect where they need an advocate? I feel as if people within immigrant communities are not aware of their voices and they're not aware of the right they have to advocate for themselves. They are just following the system, which is not what is really for them right now. And obviously we need somebody in the community, within their communities, to just encourage them to step up for themselves, advocate for their rights, and know that change is possible. I I do want to focus on our community and some of the obstacles, but let's go back to your training. What is it about a degree in social work, whether it be an undergrad or a graduate level uh, work, what makes it, what kind of uh, skills does it equip you with or tools so you can become an advocate? So what differentiates social work from psychology and other degrees is the fact that social workers see human beings from a person and environment perspective. So we just don't focus on the brain and the medical model. We don't only focus on mental health. We focus on how social structures, social barriers, and the environment affect the person. So their biological facets, their um, psychological facets, their social environment, and their spiritual spirituality. Excuse me. So concentrate a little bit then on because um, I've seen that you've done work now with Refugee One. What is Refugee One? Yes, so I am an after-school program coordinator at Refugee One, which is a refugee resettlement organization in Uptown Chicago. Um, I work in the youth department there, youth program department, and we run about, have about 200 to 300 students uh, every academic year, and we have an after-school program that helps them with their homework, their academic needs, help students how to read, because obviously they're behind. Some children are illiterate. Um, Some children are behind two to three years, their um, academic grade level. Some children have not even went to school. So we're there to bridge that gap between um, helping them in school and just helping them become successful students and leaders. So whether they be refugees or immigrants or the children of immigrants, now let's talk about some commonalities between all the groups and some of the most common obstacles that they face. I feel as if the main obstacle that they face is just 
trauma and not coping with stress properly, whether that be serious trauma that they face in their countries, refugees, obviously some children have witnessed the death of their parents or loved ones, or whether that be immigrants in Chicago. There is just toxic stress that sometimes happen in the home and children are not aware of how to cope with these um, stress-related events, which just lags their entire development and everything like that. So focus on then the, immig- the immigrant, uh, immigrant experience. What kind of toxic experience can they experience at home that will cause this ripple effect? So many times, I mean, I am a parent, I'm I'm not a parent, um, I am a child of immigrants. And basically parents are hardworking. Parents are working outside uh, long hours, maybe absent in the home and children don't have a just a caregiver at home because they're obviously raising themselves or at school. And it's important to have a caregiver and that attachment with with their caregiver. And I feel as if just there is a lack of communication within the home, especially between parents and children, and children are not able to discuss their emotions and feelings, which just kind of has a domino effect on their development and just provides them with no support towards them developing any social skills. Let's hone in on that. Where, where do you think in our community, specifically the Indian community, where do you think that lack of ability to express emotion, express emotion comes from? The stigma associated with mental health. Mm. There is a huge stigma. They say that, I mean, by they, I mean immigrant families mostly, those who believe in mental health, they actually don't believe in mental health, actually. And they think that if you are a, um, if you are going to see a therapist, you are crazy. Mm-hmm. And that does not necessarily mean you're crazy. Seeing a therapist means that you want to be Uh, aware of your feelings and your emotions and that you just need somebody to talk to in in order to cope and people are just so hesitant to see a therapist because they think that you are crazy and there's a differentiation between seeing a psychiatrist and a therapist a psychiatrist prescribes medication and a therapist is just there to talk to you Hmm. and help you understand yourself someone there to talk to you because you're not able to talk to somebody else at home maybe but where do you think our parents and our grandparents' generation got it from? Is it something that's always existed maybe in that culture where expressing yourself isn't normal? So they just brought it over into our society where maybe it's more normal to express yourself. And that's why we have this dichotomy as the children of immigrants where we're kind of caught between two worlds. I honestly think that it's just part of their culture. And exactly, they brought it here to um, the United States. And I feel like it's not just a um, South Asian issue. This is just all non-Western countries predominantly who believe that there is a stigma associated with mental health. And that if you talk about your emotions, you are weak and Mm. you are not strong or you are, you know, begging for attention. What do you think are some steps or what do you advise to parents and uh, non-Western and I don't want to, like, stereotype, right? Oh, absolutely for, not. This, that's why I want to focus on our community. We know it's a problem. Yeah. But how do we, what advice do you give to the parents, uh, to caregivers, in, in terms of let's now break down these barriers and these walls? What can we do that's very easy at the house, at home, to kind of start developing this open relationship? Are there any tools or tricks? Absolutely. Listen to your children. Validate their feelings. Parents are obviously parents. They care about their children. If parents are willing to take their kids to the doctor when they break their leg or something like that, parents should be willing to invest in their child's social and emotional development. And that does not mean you have to send your children to early Head Start programs. That just means listening to your child, validating their feelings. 
for example, the psychologist Eric Erickson, he had a set of psychosocial developmental stages. I don't necessarily remember the exact stages by name, but basically children go through a series of stages when they are between the ages of 0 and 12. And during these specific stages, children need validation because they're learning all of these skills. Children are becoming independent. Children are they are, you know, pushing boundaries and they need validation and emotional support or else they will feel as if they are a failure. So let's let's look at some concrete examples. Yes. Uh, a child goes to their parent and says, I don't like when you talk to me like this or I don't like when you say these things. They sound mean. And the parent says, OK, you're being weak. I, you know, I need to make this child stronger. What, what, what would you say? I would tell the parent in a nice way to ask their child why why do you think this way don't just ask closed-ended questions just encourage open-ended questions and kind of explore your child's feelings and emotions why do you feel that way what in spe what specifically did i do for you to make you think that way that i am bothering you okay so i'm already imagining the pushback how do you then find the right balance between nurture and discipline do you guys cover that at all do you guys give any advice on that I mean, I'm not an expert at that, okay. but I would say that there is a balance between, obvi you obviously need a balance, because if you get, give kids too much freedom, that is not good for them either, but be open to your children's opinions, because that's really important in them developing character, and character is one of the main keys to success, obviously, when you grow up. Children can study and read books and do all of these things when they are younger, but that does not necessarily mean that that's going to provide them all the skills necessary. You want to communicate as much as possible with your child in order for them to gain these social skills. Let's play this out a little bit then. So you, you brought up a great point. So say you're not communicating, you're not letting them express themselves. Yeah. Let's now go forward. The, the child is now an early teen. They're a late teen. They're entering their 20s. What have you seen? happens when, when children don't get those needs met from their caregivers? I've seen this prevalent in many communities, whether that be immigrants, refugees, low-income um, status, individual households. It's just that I can give you a specific example, actually, with um, boys and okay. men. Perfect. Yes. So obviously there is a stigma associated with um, men in general not expressing their feelings and that it is frowned upon and that shows a weakness, right. which is unfortunate. Right. And it's really hard for um, men in general to open up their feelings and communicate. And you kind of see the pattern when children get older is that they are engaged in more risky behavior. And that is their way of coping. Hmm especially boys. So if you see research states that a lot of times boys who are depressed or who have anxiety, they don't necessarily show their emotions, but they are engaging in risky behavior such as perhaps drinking, uh, more violence, more aggression. And these are traits attributed to masculinity. But these are toxic traits because of toxic stress that has been in, prevalent in the household since they were younger. So on one hand, the, the, the father probably is thinking that the more strict I am with him and the more I discipline him, he's not going to get into these behaviors. Mm -hmm. But by doing so, he's actually encouraging him one way or the other into, into getting into those. Exactly. It's very hmm. contradicting, but that's unfortunate because we're human beings. We're social creatures. Right. We need to cope. We mm -hmm. need to deal mm -hmm. with our feelings. And how are boys or men going to deal with these feelings if they're not going to be social about them? They're going to engage in other activities. They're going to engage in other toxic behaviors. And we are assuming that that's what boys just do. They're going to be violent. They're going to do all of these things because that's because they're boys. But that's an effect because of the fact that they can't cope with their feelings. Hone in on that. So 
somebody, a community leader was asking me, or he was telling me about the situation at, in his community, stating that that the children of those congregants, they, they were not aware of many things. So the, the young men, the boys, they didn't know how to behave in certain instances. And he saw it as something specific to an ethnic background. And the first thing that came to my mind was, maybe there's not open dialogue and open communication at the home. So can the community leaders do now to help out? I mean, be that person who listens to them. Because obviously there is a disconnect and you notice a pattern that they are not having proper communication within their home. Try to be their friend. Try to be their, you know, mentor. Try to listen to them and try to validate them because that's what's needed. You put up, you put up a really good post the other day uh, that had to do with nurturing a child's mental health. Yes. And you had a lot of different, it was like an infographic. You had a lot of different points on there. Could you go through some of the top points that build towards nurturing a child's mental health? Yes, absolutely. Sure. Ask children about their day okay. and not specifically what did you do. Ask them specifically what part of your day made a difference to you. And then another point would be asking your children about an event that happened that day and how it has affected you emotionally. And those are important factors because of the fact that you want your children to open up with you. And you, whether that be anything random that they're speaking, you just want your child to speak their mind. So if, if your child is not used to being asked those questions, obviously mm -hmm. there's going to be like a buffer period. Yeah, absolutely. And that's fine. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. How? What else? Give us a few more tips. I think it's important to listen and ask our children of the satisfaction of their day. We need to avoid dead-end questions such as, um, what did you do in school today? Oh, I did reading. That's it. That's not what we want to encourage children to talk about. We need to encourage children to share their thoughts, observe any signs, and watch your child for signs that it's time to end the conversation. So like, some, like what? So, I mean, sometimes parents want to overdo it and just ask their, their kids so many questions and just get everything out of them because they're in that mood to kind of get their kids to spill all of the beans. But you need to look for signs that your child wants to end the conversation. For example, when a child begins to stare into space, they give a silly responses or they ask you to repeat several of your comments, it's probably time to stop <laughs> discussing it with them. So what my kids do all the time. <laughs> okay. No, I'm, I'm just kidding, but I'm not. Um, and it's important to reflect feelings with your children. So, okay, okay, is there something that I, now give me specific advice. Is there something I should be doing in the morning or the evenings, like at bedtime? Should we have like a recap or in the morning? Because, you know, now the whole thing is mindfulness, positive affirmations. So is there, do you have any designated tips at the moment right now that I can implement straight away? Reflect your child's feelings. Put yourself in your child's shoes and validate their feelings. That's something I do on my own. Yes, absolutely. Because okay. one of the most important skills good listeners have is the ability to put themselves in the shoes of others and to empathize with the speaker or your child by attempting to understand their thoughts and feelings. Okay. As okay. a parent, try to mirror your child's feelings by repeating them. You might reflect a child's feelings by commenting, it sounds as if you're angry at your math teacher. You know, restating or rephrasing what children have said is useful when they're experiencing powerful emotions that they, not, they may not be fully aware of. Okay. So let's do this. I think what we'll do is we'll, for this, we'll bring you on again. Okay. And you can give us a structured journey on, on what to do from like morning to night. Okay. But what I'd like to ask you about is for the parents who are not doing this. Okay. And, you know, the environment for their children have become stressful. Mm -hmm. What happens? Like, what does that yield? 
what does stress look like? Like, what are some examples of a stressed out child? Um, what are some of the warning signs? So children who grow up in stressful environments generally find it harder to concentrate. They find it harder to sit still, harder to rebound from disappointments, and harder to follow directions. And that has a direct effect on your child's performance in school. When you're overwhelmed by an uncontrollable impulse and distracted by negative feelings, it's even hard to learn the alphabet. Mm. So a parent, maybe th they may think they're doing the right thing with the extra discipline mm -hmm. and putting them into all these programs, but they're hindering their children's growth. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, and these are some of the early warning signs. Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned earlier that the later warning signs are them, especially with boys, getting engaged in risky behavior, violence, etc. Yeah. Hone in on real quick again, because the, the dynamic that's very interesting to me is the father-son dynamic. Mm -hmm. And especially in, in the non-quote-unquote Western communities where that open dialogue is not there, that open communication is not, not there. I actually had a very interesting experience over the weekend. Uh, I was traveling and I was with with an old friend and I asked him something. I said, why don't you just talk to your dad about that? He goes, no, 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 no. Like th that, you know, me and my mom will talk about it. I spoke with the father about it afterwards. And I said, look, why don't you just tell your son how you feel? And he hesitated and he said, no, no, his, his mom and him are open. You know, his mom talks to him about that. And I felt right away that if they were just more open with each other, they both would have got some resolution to the anxiety and, and, and the feelings that they were having about the other. Mm-hmm again mentally what do you think is happening in, in in both minds where they just can't open up like i know you brought up the, the the stigma the cultural baggage but what is the first step how do we say look just talk because you you can give that advice but sometimes it's so nerve-wracking it's almost like going what is it uh skydiving where you just don't want to take that first step i feel like it's appearance for, they need to take the first step, especially the father. No matter how hard it is, you need to understand. That's why it's important to advocate for mental health and it's important to advocate why emotions and feelings are important when it comes to your child's development. Obviously, parents care for their children and the father needs to take the first step in order to make that change in the relationship, whether it's difficult or not to. And that that means informing the father about why it's important to communicate with your son. If you're willing to put your son through college and get him a degree, you should be willing to just be emotionally available to him because that's just as important as sending him or her to tutoring classes to get good grades. And it's not a sign of weakness being available. Uh, exactly. Now let's jump to, because one thing that I've seen become very prevalent is medication. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I feel, and I'm not saying medication is wrong or mm -hmm. that it's always wrong, but I feel like sometimes we use it as a scapegoat. So instead of addressing the issue head on, which is through talking or whatnot, mm -hmm. they'll say, okay, no, no, he's just depressed or he's just this. Give him some medication. Is mm -hmm. that accurate? Medication is important. And I feel, I mean, everybody has their own opinion on medication when it comes to specific symptoms. Medication is important for severe mental illness, I feel like. But when it comes to depression and anxiety, I feel as if coping with your emotions is the best sort of medicine because a medicine medicine cannot fix your relationships long term mm. medicine is not going to a uh, brain scan is not going to tell you what problems are in your life mm. i'm sorry go ahead no no no. so medication has its purposes mm -hmm. but it's still not going to take care of some very key issues which is the long-term relationships the underlying uh, issues that exist so do you feel that we are heavily reliant on medication as a tool Specifically, yes, when it comes to symptoms of depression and anxiety, 
individuals with depression lack motivation. They lack waking up in the morning. They don't want to get up. Sometimes they are in manic depressed episodes and they just lack any sort of energy and people just take medication in order to solve that. But is that really the solution? Mm. Do you not only need medication to resolve these symptoms or do you need external um, resources and support to help you become motivated? Mm. Feelings are not hard science. Feelings are just feelings and they're emotions and you can't just fix that by a pill or EEG scan. Have you had any experience with... um children who have grown up in this environment and who are adults now and they're having a difficult time reconciling their past meaning you know they grew up in an environment that was maybe toxic or maybe they didn't have a good relationship with their father or their mother do you find that they're still having difficulties in adulthood Yes. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of the study before, but the uh, Adverse Childhood Experience Study. Okay. It's a very popular study. Um, it's called ACEs, your ACE score. So basically, ACEs include um, trauma in the home, uh, an absent parent, a uh, family member who is incarcerated, any sort of emotional abuse, uh, physical abuse, neglect. Um, if you are interested any and your listeners, look up the ACEs study. Basically, individuals who report having more than one ACE are more likely to have physical problems such as um heart attacks and high blood pressure diabetes more prone to early death um it's more likely for their family members to go through the same experiences as well just by having these adverse childhood experiences so this is one thing that we emphasize in the wallaway is that the individual has to take care of their physical self their emotional self their psychological self because i talk a lot about entrepreneurship and business but i don't think you can be successful in those things truly Unless you're taking care of yourself holistically, absolutely. And you agree, like you're, I'm, I'm basically that's what I'm hearing from you that a mental stressor can cause physical ailments. Yes. So basically, our brain is hardwired into responding to stress in the same way whether that stress be you getting nervous in front of an audience speaking for the first time or whether you're in a life or death situation your body's going to react to the same thing your brain and that's going to put you in this flight or fight response and your body doesn't know that you're just nervous about your parents yelling at you or you're nervous about a car about to hit you mm. so your body responds in the same way so your brain triggers these neurons to go throughout your body and that raises your blood pressure that raises stress levels that's going to raise your glucose levels and that affects your overall physical well-being and this toxic stress that happens and imagine if this toxic stress occurs reoccurringly what's that going to do to your physical well-being so in closing what advice do you have for the listeners to just get more acquainted with social work or social work services, mental health, what what last advice do you have for them? Self-care. Take care of yourself, whether that be spending time away from your work, closing your computers with your children, just speaking with your children, maybe aside from school and homework, ask them about their day, talk to them about their favorite toy, talk to them what their favorite show on television was or anything else. Just step away from your daily life activities that you are focused on and just focus on yourself and your well-being and relax because your brain needs that relief of stress and it's just really important to take care of yourself and self-care is basically what is the key to just the emotional well-being. Sumeya Mink, thank you so much. No problem. We can find you on LinkedIn at what, Sumeya Mink? Yes. All right, guys, you can look her up on LinkedIn at Sumeya Mink. We're looking forward to having her back on the show soon. Thank you for listening. Tune in and subscribe.